My grandfather was a magnificent storyteller. I remember growing up hearing his stories about growing up in the Great Depression on a um, tobacco farm in West Tennessee. Him talking about being instructor at the Naval Academy and then serving in the Navy and active duty and all these crazy things that he did. And I remember as he told his stories, he always pulled these little tidbits of wisdom and information out of it. I was recently at a very uh, high end, I'll say, in-person mastermind in the States. And I told a story about my past career and I had all these people ask me questions about it later on. And I realized, hey, there's a lot of stuff that we can pull out of this. Really life lessons that I learned from events like this that can be applied to our entrepreneurial and or e-commerce journeys. So in this episode, I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to pull some information out of it, maybe some uh, some thoughts that we can all think about in our everyday lives. I hope you like this episode. Stay to the end. Here we go. Hi, I'm Tim Jordan. And in every corner of the world, entrepreneurship is growing. So join me as I explore the stories of successes and failures. Listen in as I chat with the risk takers, the adventurous, and the entrepreneurial veterans. We all have a dream of living a life fulfilling our passions, and we want a business that doesn't make us punch a time clock, but instead runs around the clock, in the AM and the PM. So get motivated, get inspired. You're listening to the AM PM Podcast. Working as a firefighter was a lot of downtime. We'd work 24-hour shifts, and then we'd be off for 48 hours. So most weeks, we only work two days a week, so firefighters always had part-time jobs. We would also spend a lot of time essentially sitting around at the fire station, unless we were on a call or unless we were doing some training or some administration or PR work. There was a lot of just downtime, right? Especially at the slower stations. When I was especially a rookie, I was stuck out in these outlying slower stations where we might run one or two calls in a 24-hour shift, and most of those were just medical calls. They were short calls. So we would play video games. We would go out and play disc golf in the parking lot of the uh, of the fire station. There was a lot of just goofy stuff that we did. But I always ended up on my laptop working on my computer. And that's how I actually got started in e-commerce. It was a side hustle that turned into selling on Amazon. And um, the rest is history, so to speak. But all of that downtime just amps you up for when the alarm does go off. You're just sitting there like a, like a wound up rubber band. And 90% of the time when that alarm goes off at the station, there's nothing to it. It's a call and fire alarm, meaning the smoke detector's gone off somewhere from burnt popcorn, or it's a medical call, or it's just something that, that you know, you need to go to, but it's not exciting. And usually you can tell from the dispatcher's voice, from their tone, from the way that they're speaking, if this is something or not, because the dispatchers already know, hey, this is probably going to be something. And one evening I'm at station one downtown um, 1A, actually, the, the kind of number one truck in the city, right? We were one of the busiest. Call comes in, and before the tone, there's like this uh, mechanical tone that goes off, and then the dispatcher speaks. Before the tone even finishes, the dispatchers are talking. Engine 1A, 1B, ladder 2, engine 3, engine, all these engines, they're pa- they're paging everybody out. Whoa. We instantly knew something was going. So before we even said what it was, we're running for the poles, right? We're sliding down the poles. They tone us out on what's called a structure fire with entrapment. Now, a lot of times they call us to a quote-unquote house fire. There's smoke in the kitchen or smell of something burning, and it's usually nothing to it. But I had never heard them say house fire with entrapment. That means there's there's something confirmed. There is a confirmed house fire with entrapment. We are jacked up. This is what we're ready for. This is like the the call of dreams. We don't want bad things to happen to people. If something bad is going to happen, you kind of hope that it's on your shift and your district so you can be there to, to help with it, right? 
So we get in uh, in the trucks, and at my station, we had two trucks roll out, 1A and 1B. And 1A, we were the firefighting truck on first due calls, and 1B is the rescue truck, right? They're the truck that's going to go in and try to uh, help whoever's stuck. Well, most times we had a full staff, but this time we didn't. It was a driver, a captain, and me. I was the only firefighter on the truck. It's across the other side of our district. So we're rolling. We can see the smoke blowing up over downtown. We knew this thing is rolling. We roll up to this house. There's a guy standing in the driveway screaming. He's covered in blood and he's screaming, my brother, my brother, he's stuck. He's stuck. He's in there. I can't find him. I don't know what to do. All right. We have an entrapment. I look in this house. It's a single story house. About a third of it's on fire, like the back third. And when I say it's on fire, I mean, flames are just blowing out the windows like torches, right? Just, just blowing and going, we used to call it. The front two-thirds of the house, well, they've got smoke billowing out the windows, real thick, dark smoke, but not actual flames. It's a deadly situation. If anybody's in that house, if they're not dead already, they're close, right? So the way that you attack a fire like that is you start in the unburned side of the house and you make your way towards the fire and push the fire out. Because if I start on the side that's on fire and start fighting that, I can actually push the fire towards the other side of the house. You've got to cut the fire off. So I know what to do, right? And normally you go in in a team of two. It would have been two firefighters, a firefighter and captain. My captain on this crew, he was a uh, he was a temporary kind of replacement captain. He was awful. He was lazy. We rolled up this fire. He didn't have his gear on, right? And we're supposed to be like geared up and ready to plug our oxygen tanks in when we roll up to the fire. This guy, he was just standing around with his jacket undone. He didn't have his air pack on. I'm like, I can't wait for this guy. I got to go. So I knew what I was supposed to do. I grab a hose line off the side. I pull it out. I stretch it. The driver, uh, you know, gets the gets the water pump going. We got water to this thing, 115 PSI to the hose. I'm ready to go. My objective is to go in and cut this fire off and stop it while engine 1B, the crew that was, you know, also at the station, the rescue crew, can essentially crawl in behind me and look for this patient, right? Look for this person. Things didn't go exactly as planned, 100%. Uh, I'll talk about some of that here in a minute. But this fire is one of the most memorable fires that I ever fought. And I fought a lot for a lot of reasons. One is because I was by myself and I shouldn't have been. I should have waited for backup and I went into this house fire by myself. Second is we actually found the guy and revived him. So 10 minutes after we got there and all this other stuff had happened, I remember looking over in the front yard and they had the patient out there doing CPR on him. So he was not breathing. His heart was not beating. They had found him consumed with carbon monoxide and smoke. He wasn't burned, but he was clinically dead. And 10 minutes later, they had him in the back of an ambulance speaking. They were able to revive him enough where he could actually become conscious again and speak. Brought that guy back from the dead in a clinical sense. Amazing. Uh, several months later, we were brought up in front. Our crews were brought up in front of the, the city council and given awards. And I mean, it was like one of those perfect heroic firefighting occurrences. The things that they don't tell you, though, is that that is the hardest work you've ever done in your life. We have some of the coolest technology. Those trucks are anywhere from a half a million dollars to $2 million. They're very expensive trucks. We have the latest and greatest stuff. We have thermal imaging cameras to find patients. Just the gear on our bodies costs thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. The air packs that we wear have such advanced masks that they have heads-up displays to tell your oxygen level. The fabrics that are used in your turnout gear 
are able to stop hazardous materials, stop, um, you know, caustic fumes. Most of the time they do incredible things for insulation. Um, the amount of money that they spend in training is ridiculous. I went through like seven months of rookie school. That's very, very expensive training, right? But what they don't tell you is it's just hard work. We had everything we needed, the latest and greatest tools, and it's miserable. When you go into a house fire, you only last about 10 minutes. These oxygen tanks are supposed to last you between 30 and 45 minutes, right? But usually your air alarm, your low air alarm is going off after 10 minutes. Why? Because the work in there is some of the most physically demanding, brutal work you've ever done. You can't see anything. These movies where firefighters walk in and there's some flames on the wall and they're walking. No, that's absolutely not true. Imagine walking up to this front door with smoke billowing out and you take one step in or you crawl one foot in and it is 100% pitch pure black. You cannot see your hand in front of your mask. You have a flashlight, which kind of makes the smoke glow, but you can't see anything. It's pure dark. Your adrenaline's racing. You're crawling. You got a hundred pounds of gear in your back. You're dragging a 150 pound hose line or all these other tools. You're searching in an area that you're not familiar with. You're trying to find the walls of this place, but furniture's getting in the way. So you're throwing furniture out of the way. You're moving fast. It's hot. You're trying to keep up with your partners. You got the radio blaring in your ears. Everybody else is doing all their stuff. It is physically demanding. So literally a 30 minute bottle, a bottle that you should be able to breathe on for 30 minutes within eight or nine minutes. It's empty. That's how much air you're sucking out of that thing, right? You come out and it's almost impossible to continue working. You come out and you just fall down on your hands and knees outside of this building. Someone else comes and changes your air bottle for you and they send you back in. It is one of the most brutal, exhausting things ever. Movies don't do it justice. In e-commerce, it's fairly similar. We have amazing tools. We have, well, let me say not just e-commerce, but digital marketing in general, business, entrepreneurship. We have the best tools we've ever had. We have the best training we've ever had. We have the best resources that we've ever had in the history of entrepreneurship, right? Just like that fire truck, all those tools in the, in the shelves and in the door pockets and in the backseat of that truck, we have all of those things. A lot of times we as entrepreneurs get discouraged and get complacent. Because we think that since we have all this technology, we have all these tools, we have all these great resources, we have all of these gizmos and gadgets and great things that we can pull levers on and push buttons on, that this business is going to be easy. And folks, it's not. It is hard work. Sometimes we're sucking wind. Sometimes we're not sleeping well at night. Sometimes we are racking our brains. We have Yesterday, I left the office early because I just had a migraine from trying to figure this stuff out that I'm trying to do, and it's so difficult. That's just the way it is. And it's so important that we remember that because what I see happen day in and day out in this great community that I'm a part of is people have these tools, they have the resources, they have all of the gizmos and gadgets they think they need, and then things get hard and they give up. They think this isn't for me. I must be doing it wrong because why is it so difficult when I have everything that I need? Does that make sense? I hope it does. I think this should be encouraging because look, everybody's sucking wind. Everybody is struggling. Everybody's working hard. Everybody's putting these long hours. Look, this fallacy of a four-hour work week pisses me off more than most things in this entrepreneurial world. Can we build a business? Yes, that we can work on four hours a week. Yeah, but it takes years to get it to that point. We have to do it very tactically and intentionally to get there. It's not easy. Just like we as firefighters would get so tired because there is no replacement for hard work. 
No matter what tools and resources you have, you just have to work. Remember that. Next time you realize that things are hard, you're tired, you're worn out, no matter how great your resources are, it just takes hard work. But you have to get back up and you have to keep going back into that fire, theoretically speaking. Be encouraged. Everybody's struggling just like you are. But if you're the one that's willing to get back off your knees and go back in and keep fighting that fight, you're going to be the one that comes out ahead. Another interesting thing that I take away from that is that fire, I should say, is that we did an amazing job. We actually did. All right. I'm going to pat ourselves on the back a little bit. We showed up in a situation that was pure panic. Guy standing in the driveway screaming. He's covered in blood. I'm freaking out. I'm the only firefighter on engine 1A that's going into this thing. I'm going solo. I'm going by myself. Engine 1B is not even helping stretch lines. Like I am personally for the next several minutes until another station's crew showed up. I'm the firefighter. The other guys are the rescue crew, right? I was able to keep that fire pushed back. The rescue crew was able to do what they were supposed to do. Two of these guys went in. They searched all around. They found this guy in a back corner of a bedroom. Like I said, clinically dead. They were able to, and he was not a small dude. This guy was probably pushing 250, right? They were able to drag him out on hands and knees. And by the way, you can't walk in a house fire. You're as low to the ground as you can get because it's freaking hot. And the higher you stand up or crawl, the hotter that air is. There can be sometimes a 500 degree difference in air between the ceiling and the floor. So you're crawling. So they're dragging this 250 pound dude out in pure blackness in a floor plan covered with furniture that they're not familiar with. They get him out the front door. They've got, other EMTs there waiting. It was actually the driver of other trucks started CPR. They get this guy completely taken care of. And by the time the ambulance shows up and they put him on a stretcher and stick him back in, dude's talking. We get the back third of the house put out, the fire, and the house was actually salvageable. Years later, you could drive by in that house. They'd repaired it. It was good. This is like for all intents and purposes, exactly what was supposed to happen. But you know how many people were on that stage when they presented us that Lifesaver Award? About 20. 20 people. Just because I was the only guy initially going with a fire hose, I had the captain who, I don't know, he was doing he was doing something, but I had the driver who was ridiculously fast getting all of the, the trucks set up to be pumping water to the right hose lines and to get water coming from the hydrant. That's like a huge process just to get water on a fire. The, uh, the drivers that got us to the fire quickly the district chiefs who were calling in additional backup, the other crews that showed up that were doing uh, other fire extinguishing and salvage and overhaul, Engine 1B who went in and found this guy and pulled him out, the other crews that jumped in and started doing life-saving procedures on this guy. Like everybody was busy. Everybody. 20 of us. 20 of us for one person. And it's so easy sometimes to forget that we can't do it alone. Was I the only guy at first with a fire hose? Yeah, but man... Getting that job done was not just me. If I didn't have my driver getting me loaded up on my hoses, it wasn't going to happen. If we didn't have all these other resources coming, if we didn't have even the mechanics that work for the city that change the oil in the fire trucks every three months, those fire trucks wouldn't be running. A massive operation. And that's kind of something we forget as entrepreneurs. Right, Entrepreneurs are supposed to be lone wolves. They're supposed to be go-getters. We're supposed to be action takers. We're supposed to be um, aggressive and be able to do this on our own and stand apart from everybody. But guys, listen, we can't do it on our own. We absolutely can't. I don't know a single successful business person that has done it by themselves. Steve Jobs had Steve Wozniak. Um, 
Walt Disney had his brother, like Henry Ford had his brother, and they had massive teams behind them. Every single successful entrepreneur has to have a team. Now, am I saying that it's impossible to build a business without employees? No. I know solopreneurs have great digital marketing agencies or service agencies. They don't have employees. I get that. Am I saying you have to have business partners? No, I have. I, I still do. I've also done it without. But even if I don't have employees, I don't have business partners, I don't have people backing me with money, I'm doing it myself, the only way I've ever found any, any grain of success was by having a community. When we go to these in-person events, when we are involved in online communities and masterminds, we absolutely glean so much information and encouragement and support and wisdom and guidance from those, those resources that it's the only way to succeed. My business partner, Norm, we run the Centurion League Mastermind. And twice a week, we're on Zoom, right? Multiple hours a week, we're on Zoom. And yes, we're leading it, we're teaching it. But man, the stuff that we learn from people is amazing. We've got a guy who's a part-time job selling e-commerce. He works up uh, up north in the automotive industry. And he was talking the other day about he put up a TikTok video that organically got over a million views. And it focuses on his product. Holy crap, who would have thought you could do that, right? Him talking about that inspired someone else in our group that two weeks later is like, oh my gosh, I did it. I put this cheesy video up. It's got 30,000 views and traffic's going great and, and I'm selling a lot more product. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. All the dinner tables that I've sat around with people that are that are in this fight with me, other solopreneurs, so to speak, and we compare notes and we share information, we commiserate with each other sometimes. That has been so valuable. If I had never sat at those dinner tables and gone to these events and sat on a sat in the back of an Uber or a taxi with someone at a conference and learned something from them, I never would have figured this out. Just like that firefighting operation that we did, saving that guy, getting that fire put out took 20 people. Folks, do not get complacent and think that we can do this ourselves because I am telling you we can't. And for those of you listening that define yourselves as the exception, look, Tim, I've done it myself. I'm doing it myself. Maybe you're surviving by yourself, but I promise you I'm 100% convicted in the fact that if you had a community, you had some resources, you had some friends, you had a mastermind, you could do better. You absolutely could do better. The reason that so many of these e-commerce conferences happen or these masterminds, these meetups, like people ask me all the time, Tim, do you ever spend any time in the office? Well, not very much. I fly a lot. Even in the time of COVID, I'm like on a plane multiple times a month. And the reason why people keep coming to these things is people realize there's so much value in them. So many times we as entrepreneurs are kind of lonely, like our family, our friends, they don't understand what we're doing. I've got better friends in the e-commerce space than almost everybody out of the e-commerce space. I've got people that I actually go on vacation with now that I've met in the e-commerce space because we can commiserate. I love that word. Commiserate with each other. We can compare notes. We can talk about business. We can just talk about our lives with each other and they get it. They understand that. If I wasn't part of these communities, if I wasn't part of these um, groups, if I didn't have my connections and my resources and my network within this space, I would really be missing out. And I promise you, I would not be successfully selling um, and, and being an entrepreneur right now. Please, please, please consider this. Don't fall into this fallacy that we can do it alone. The next thing and kind of the third thing that I want to cover that that kind of compares to this this fire experience is that we can really injure ourselves. We can fail. We can die. Our businesses can die. 
when that fire alarm went off, I was so excited. Man, hearing this call come in, this was it. I was the guy. I was jacked up. I was ready to go. When I was hired on to the uh, the fire department, the year that I was hired, there's 2,500 applicants. They hired 25. Of the 25 they hired, 23 of them had applied multiple times and gone through the process and been rejected. It was just me and another guy that got hired the first time. Still don't know why I got hired the first time, but I did. Went to my head a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Figured I must be awesome. I graduated top of my class in EMT school. I graduated second in my class in the firefighting portion of the school, so the fire academy. I was accepted into a like high-tech search and rescue team. We did structural collapse and um, confined space rescue. I was a hazmat technician, a high-angle rescue specialist, all these things. like Imagine the equivalent of the, the SWAT team for the fire department, right? I was in all that. I was good at what I did. When you're a rookie, they send you out in the middle of nowhere, right? They send you to the station nobody else wants to go. And they send me to the station where I had this curmudgeon old crotchety captain who'd been there forever. And I had this driver that hated running medical calls. And I was the senior firefighter on the truck, had another rookie with me. And when we would go on these calls, I was the guy. Like, I had to make the decisions. Um, but I was good at it. I was very good at it. As soon as I got in my, like, year and a half and was able to – put in for a different station. I picked engine 1A. I wanted to go downtown. I want to be the tip of the spear. It's one of the busiest trucks, ran a lot of calls, ran a lot of fires, and I was the guy. I got on the truck. I became the quickly became the senior firefighter on that truck. Had a great crew, right? Not the old captain that didn't have his jacket on. Like I said, he was temporary, but my normal captain was a great guy. And I was arrogant. I was the man. I loved when you know, these elementary schools would bring their kids to the fire station and tour it. Man, I loved showing it off. I loved putting my gear on. I loved, but when a call came on, I always was confident. I knew what to do. I had a captain on 1B who was always riding me pretty hard. And one day there's a call come in and I was able to do something kind of by myself before anybody else even figured out what was going on. He's like, Tim, you may be a pain in the butt. He said, but you're really good at this. I'm like, Thank you. I appreciate that. It went to my head. So when that call came in that night for that fire, that, that structure fire with entrapment, I had no fear. I knew exactly what I needed to do. I had the training. I had the experience. I was much better uh, physical shape than I am now. I've put on a few pounds, but I was ready to go. We rolled up to that fire. I didn't care that I was going alone. I didn't need that captain. I didn't need backup. I knew what had to happen. I was arrogant. I was complacent. I had too much courage. I had too much... Um, comfort in this spot, right? I had the training, I had the gear, I had everything I needed. So I told you a few minutes ago that when you approach a house fire, that maybe one piece of the house on fire, you start on the back, right? The unburned side. And you work your way because you can spread that fire nozzle. It's not just dumping a straight stream of water. Typically inside, you fan it out of this big cone and the cone actually moves air. So essentially, uh, imagine walking through a hallway, spraying this cone of spinning water that's pushing a vortex of air forward. If a hallway is on fire, a tube is on fire as an analogy, you can start at one end, and as you start moving this fire, you're not just putting out the fire with water. You're actually moving the heat away from this cone. It's, it's an incredible thing. Go on YouTube and watch this thing. Um, like when they do this fuel tanks outside, it, it's really cool. So what you're doing is moving a lot of air, and if you start at the wrong point, that air will actually push the fire into the unburned side. That's why you got to start and kind of ventilate this house back towards the unburned side and then try to extinguish the fire then. Because I was arrogant, I saw a side door. 
And this side door was right kind of on that line. Like I'm looking at the door and the windows on the right side are black with smoke. The windows on the left have already busted out in fires, just torching out these things. I thought, you know what? I'm good enough. I can break the rules. Instead of going in the front of this house and crawling around for maybe five minutes, trying to figure out how to weed my way through these rooms and hallways back to the burnout side, I can take a shortcut. I can go in the side door. And if I go in the side door, I'll be right there where the fire is. And my plan was to get in the side door, get on my back, scoot, and like push this fire back away from me. I was going to cut it off, right? So I'm by myself. I've got this hose line. I start running to the side door. I hear people yelling at me, right? But it's just chaos. You can't tell what people are saying. Later on, I heard that the other crew, the 1B crew, was yelling at me because they were supposed to come in behind me, right? So I was supposed to go into the hose. They were going to come in behind me, and I was their protection, actually. So if things started to roll back to where they were, I could stop it, and they could make an egress or an escape. I go to the side door. Side door's locked. I start kicking. I kick this door in. When I kick it in, this blast, a hot air blast, I can feel it through my turnouts. It's hot, but it's not flame. I got this. I get down on my hands and knees, and I start crawling in. The moment I crawl in, pure blackness, and it is loud. I can hear this just raging torch. Now, I can't see it at the time, but I know that right above my head are flames. I can You can actually hear fire, like this combination of, t- of torch and like crackling, right? So I know the fire's going over my head, and I think, this isn't good. This is what they warn you about, but I'm fast. I can figure this out. So my plan is to go right, to actually crawl underneath this fire extension, get to the end of it, turn around, cut it off. So I start crawling what I think is right, start crawling towards where the fire is extending. And the whole time I'm on my back, I'm as low to the ground as I can because it is hot. I can feel my ears just burning. That's one of the most sensitive spots in your body right here. I can feel them burning. I think I got this, but I'm I'm committed now. I've got to. I got to cut this thing off because I don't have time to start back around and I don't know where my crew is. I got to get this fire cut off. We got to save this guy, right? I'm the hero. I'm the man. Things get really, really confusing at this point. I don't know where I am. I don't know what room I'm in. I don't know where the fire is. I don't know if I've crawled in five feet, 10 feet, or 50 feet. I don't know. But I realize at some point that I'm in trouble. And I have got to get this fire cut off. So I start doing these techniques to try to dampen the fire above my head and move it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm using different nozzle adjustments. And I kind of start to panic a little bit, right? I kind of start to panic. I know I'm slowing down the fire, but I'm in trouble, right? A fire is not as simple as a structure fire. is not as simple as you go and spray a little water and it goes out like a campfire. No, it does not work that way. Much more complex than that. And I've been in fires where I can dump 500 gallons in a room and still not get the fire put out because there's just so much ambient heat in there. So anyways, I'm trying to fight this fire. I'm, I'm trying to get a good cone set up and push this thing backwards towards where I think it's going. I'm a little disoriented. I know I'm making some progress, right? I would make some progress. I'd feel it cool off for a little while. Then I'd feel it heat up and I'm laying on my back and people are yelling on the radio and I know other crews are working, right? Well, at some point I'm laying there and I hear another crew who is engine 5B, I think, who has showed up to the fire and they've actually advanced a hose line in the front door where they were supposed to. And I can hear them off to, you know, one side and I can hear them saying they're at they're at the fire. And I realized if they're at the fire, I'm under the fire. 
oh crap, I'm in trouble, like way worse than I thought I was. I am hot. I'm burning up. You can actually feel your ears crack, the skin on your ears crack. And that's like the danger zone. Like they always tell you, if you feel your skin bubbling on your ears, like you're in trouble. You got to go. I'm as low as I can get on the ground and I have no idea where the exit is. No idea. So what they tell you to do is follow the fire hose because I brought this fire hose in the door so it should lead back out. So all I can do is, is take my hands on the hose and start crawling and feeling that hose and following that hose out like a piece of spaghetti and it will eventually lead you out the door. At this point, I'm in full panic mode. I realize I'm in over my head. I'm under this fire. The other crew is actually pushing the rest of that heat back towards me. They don't know where I am. I don't know where the door is and I am miserably burning up. I was basically crawling for my life. And I realized if I don't get out this door, I am in real big trouble. Eventually, my mask lit up. I had some light, right? Now, it's it's dark outside and we're doing this. But I see some, see some lights flashing and I realize that I'm getting sprayed with water. When I finally figure out what's happened, I had crawled out the door. But I was so covered in soot, I could hardly see out of my mask. I didn't realize out the door. So I crawled out onto the porch. And another hose crew who was kind of protecting the house beside us from, from the fire saw me come out and my helmet was on fire. My helmet was burning. The leather badge on the front of my helmet was on fire. Plastic was melting. They're spraying me off. It's cooling me off. All this steam is pouring off my body because as soon as the water hits my turnouts, it steams, right? They're cooling me off. I've made it outside, but I am hot. I realize that I've got a bunch of water droplets on my mask and I'm trying to trying to see. So normally you just take your glove and you wipe your mask off, this full face polycarbonate mask. And when I did, it sunk. My hand sunk into the mask. That's not supposed to happen. When everything was said and done, I was able to look at my mask and it was bubbled. It was melted. It had not broken, but it was melted. Polycarbonate melts at about six to 700 degrees on those masks. If you take one breath of air at 500 degrees, you die. You're dead. 500 degree air into your lungs will instantly scorch and burn the alveoli in your lungs, those little hair-like things that actually, you know, transfer the oxygen. And you're dead. My mask had failed. It was so soft, it had bubbled. And when I wiped my hand across it, it caved in. I was one breath away from being dead in there. One breath away. As much as I would like to say that I helped save that guy, I don't know if I did. I know I slowed down the fire some, but I also know that it was a real good thing that second crew, that 5B, was able to show up and do what I should have done, right? Because that may have been, you know, a large part of getting that guy out. Now, did I, you know, contribute to the firefighting operation? Yes, I'm sure I slowed that fire down. Technically, I'm sure I cut it off and slowed it down to a point where they were able to find that guy and then the other crew come in and kind of play clean up and finish what I should have done anyways. But I almost died. The reason that I almost died is because I was arrogant. I had the training. I had the equipment. I had the knowledge. I had the experience. I was the guy that could get this done. What I failed to realize is that no matter what I have as tools and equipment and training and resources, if you don't use good common sense and follow that training, you can get yourself hurt. 
I was at this mastermind, you know, a month or so ago. And I remember back to the first one, two years ago, there was a guy there who had a very successful business, seven or eight figure Amazon business. And I had a conversation with him and he was telling me how he was selling, how he was finding these products. And I said, look, man, I think you need to change things up. Why don't you try this? Why don't you try this? He said, no, why would I do that? I said, because things are changing. You can't just do the same old stuff. You got to change your, um, your strategy. He said, look, I've got the team. I've got the wisdom. I've got the experience. I've got the sales. Why would I ever change anything? I don't need anybody's help. I should be on stage speaking right now, not learning from you speakers. I don't even know what I'm doing here. He was arrogant. I talked to him about six months ago. He was trying to sell his business. Nobody would buy it. His business was so jacked up. His sales were tanking. He had used too much black hat stuff that the aggregators didn't want to buy his business. And my understanding is right now he's out of business. He's done. He, he threw in the towel. He had the tools. He had the experience. He had the wisdom. He had the track record. But he didn't have the humility to think, hey, I need to display wisdom here and listen to what other people are saying. I need to not be arrogant. I need to not be so confident in myself that I'm going to make stupid decisions, stupid mistakes. One of the things that my dear old grandpa, West Tennessee tobacco farmer grandpa taught me was that no matter how smart I think I am, how experienced I think I am, how talented I think I am, I'm not. There's always someone better. There's always something to learn. There's always a stupid mistake I'm going to make. And there's always something that I'm doing wrong. It doesn't always stick. I can still have have a touch of arrogance and lack of humility and maybe complacency. But folks, just like I had all the tools and resources and everything that I needed, and I almost got myself killed because of my stupidity and my arrogance, we can do that with our businesses too. Here's the challenge. No matter how comfortable you are, no matter how successful you are, no matter how confident you are in what you're doing and the resources that you have, before you jump into that doorway full of fire, right? Take a step back and just think about what you're doing. Spend a minute asking those people in your network. Find find a day or two to just ponder these decisions and sleep on things and go around and ask people, "Hey, is this a good idea?" Like if we're too arrogant to think that we know the all or that we know all the answers to ourselves and for ourselves, we're going to miss big opportunities and we might get our businesses killed too. We do have an incredible amount of opportunity. I've said it before, I'll say it again. For thousands of years, commerce was done the same way and just in the past couple decades, it's changed and it will never be the same. We are literally at the tip of the spear for generations and generations to come. We have more opportunity. We have more potential than anybody in this world has ever had to be entrepreneurs and it's amazing. But if we try to shortcut things, if we try to go in the side door, so to speak, and not go in the door we're supposed to, if we think that we can't get hurt, if we think that we're invincible, we're going to kill our businesses. We're going to have a lot of heartache. We're going to miss a lot of opportunity. I hope that these three points have made sense. Three points of don't forget it's hard work. You have to have a team. You have to have um, people there to support you and that we have to have humility because we can get ourselves hurt. We can get our businesses hurt. I hope that these three things have have helped. I hope that I'm not just preaching to the choir here, and I hope that uh, at least one of you listeners 
uh, take this to heart and maybe it'll it'll give you some encouragement or slow you down from a bad decision or just uh, give you something to think about. Folks, I appreciate you listening to this podcast. I love all of you. I appreciate this audience. I appreciate this community. I have a favor. If you like this podcast, go leave us a review. Sometimes we struggle to get um, ranking on these podcast platforms because we're not a very specific podcast. We don't talk specifically about one niche thing. We kind of keep it broad and we love, but we'd love to get more listeners. So if you would go on Spotify or iTunes or whatever you listen on and leave a review, that helps so much with the ranking. Tell other people about this podcast. Share it on social media. Uh, share it on you know whatever mastermind or network you're part of. If you find value, I'm not asking you to just blatantly uh, promote us, but if you find value, help us out. And, uh, and share it along. Also, leave us some comments. Look, on all these places, whether it's YouTube or any of these podcast platforms, you can leave comments. Tell us what kind of content you like that we put out. Tell us some of your favorite guests and uh, show a little love if you want to. Thank you all for listening. Appreciate you, and we'll see you on the next episode.